Well, good morning, and I am grateful to share with you from God's Word today. As Steve said, we are finishing up Genesis chapters 1 through 2 in this series we're calling Origins. You remember from Genesis chapter 1 that we walked through the creation week where God's powerful Word brought life into existence. And on the sixth day of creation week, we saw an initial account of the creation of man and woman. We saw that the man and woman were made in God's image, they were made male and female, and they were charged with multiplying and filling the earth. So we got some detail, but it was still within this broad overview of the creation week. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, it's like we zoom in on the sixth day of the creation week when humanity was created, and we get more detail than that initial overview provided. So in the last sermon from this series, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, in those verses Steve preached from, we got more details about how the first man was made from the dust of the ground, and the Lord breathed life into him. And we also saw, Steve especially focused on, the origin of work, and how our work, our labor, is intrinsic to human life. Work is a natural part of our existence. Well, in this next section from Genesis 2, we get still more details about man's creation. Specifically, we get to see woman's creation and the origin of marriage. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2, I'm pretty sure it's going to be on page 2, for most of our Bibles anyway, and I'll read from verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the man's ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
If we understand something's origin, then we can understand that thing's purpose. That's the premise that we're working from this morning, and I think the premise that's found within Genesis 2 and the rest of the Bible. If we understand a thing's origin, then we can understand something about that thing's purpose. So for example, I'm really into comic books and superhero stories, and within that genre, you might say, origin stories play a big part of each character's ongoing stories. So Bruce Wayne, for instance, the man who would become Batman, central to his origin story is that he witnessed the murder of his parents. And from there, the driving theme or the dominant purpose of all Batman's tales is justice. From the roots of his origin, the unjust act of murder, it leads to the purpose of his life, securing justice for Gotham City. Well, the same is true for our own origin story, specifically the origin of marriage. If we understand the origin of marriage, we'll understand its purpose. So that's the big idea for this morning's message. God's design for marriage has never changed. If we looked at Matthew chapter 19 or Mark chapter 10, we will look at Ephesians chapter 5, these passages, passages of Scripture later on in the Bible story. We would see that in each one of them, the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul explains marriage by going back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Because it's by understanding these foundational passages that we can understand the purpose of marriage. From its origin, God designed marriage. He purposed marriage towards certain ends. And as we understand these purposes, may it be so that by God's grace, we could live them out. We could see them fulfilled in our own lives for the sake of our children and for our world. So first... God's first purpose for marriage that we see. Recognize marriage is a completed partnership. Marriage is a completed partnership. So back in Genesis chapter 1, as each part of creation was completed, Moses would make the comments, and God saw that it was good. In total, seven times he makes this comment. God creates light. And God saw that it was good. God makes the dry land appear, and God saw that it was good. God brings forth plant life from the earth, and God saw that it was good. And on and on. So it's striking in chapter 2, verse 18, that this repetition is broken. Look there again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. So this should pique our interest as Bible readers. You've got this lengthy pattern. Good, 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 good. Then boom, it stops. It's not good. So it's like, goodness, I mean, what's not good about it? Everything else is. Verse 18, the Lord continues. It is not good for man to be alone. Now again, you learn your origin, you learn your purpose. 
And as we look at our origin, we see that we were not designed to be alone. We were not purposed to be isolated. Now, you may say, well, Adam's not alone here. He's got the animals to keep him company. He's got work, the garden, to keep him busy. Yet, despite having animal companionship and despite having work to do, God still concludes he's alone and it's not good. So even though the animals and work are good things, there's still something missing. There's still something incomplete about the man's existence until he has other humans to relate with. So God concludes, I'm going to fix this. Verse 18, he goes on. It is not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. So God is a matchmaker. God sees that Adam is single. He says, I'm going to set you up. That's funny. Steve and I were actually doing this same thing this past week for a friend. Steve, myself, and our friend met up for coffee. And our friend is this single guy. And the three of us are drinking coffee. And a large part of our conversation was Steve and I plotting trying to find a helper fit for him, trying to think who we could set our friend up with. Well, God does this matchmaking work too. By the way, our friend is, as I said, a single guy. He's 30 years old. He's a handsome dude. Good job. He loves Jesus. So if you're interested or you know someone who is, you can let me know or let Steve know. So God does this matchmaking work, and he declares his resolve to make a helper fit for him. But God doesn't make this helper fit for him right away. He delays a little bit. And instead, starting in verse 19, his first move is to bring the different animals to the man. And God is doing this so that the man can name the animals. And this naming of the animals is an expression of Adam's authority over the animals. So you recall from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that God gave man dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Well, this dominion, this authority over the animals is expressed now in that the man gets to name the animals. So it's similar to when parents give birth to a child. The baby doesn't come out and the nurses catch him and they're like, I think we'll name him Roger. That's not how it works, right? The nurses don't get to name the baby because they don't have authority over the baby. The parents do. That's a similar dynamic here. Adam gets to name the animals because Adam has authority over the animals. And this is relevant because next week... In Genesis chapter 3, there's going to be an animal try to subvert the man's authority. So keep that in mind. Continuing on, though, verse 20, this naming process is finishing, and Moses records, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So it's almost like God intentionally wanted Adam to feel his loneliness, to feel his incompleteness. Because God already said it's not good for man to be alone back in verse 18. But he delays creating the helper fit for him. And meanwhile, during this delay, God brings all the animals before Adam. So Adam names the cow. Nope, that one doesn't fit. Adam names the eagle. Nope, that one doesn't fit. Adam names the dog. Nope, that one doesn't fit. And for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God knew it wasn't good for man to be alone, but he wanted Adam to know too. He wanted Adam to have experiential knowledge. Something is missing in my life. So verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while the man slept, God took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So in the same way that God brought all the animals before Adam, he now brings the woman to Adam. Here's your match, God says. This is my favorite part about weddings, even today. The father the one who procreated the bride, brings the woman down the aisle to the man. That's what God does here. The woman he created, he brings to the man to give her away. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, the first wedding. And then the man responds. And I just imagine he is like fist pumping with joy. Verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She fits me. The dog, the cow, the eagle, no way. She's a match. And just like that, the man is not alone. They have this completed partnership. They're together, sharing life, relating with each other living in community in ways they couldn't with animals and their work. And God's design for marriage hasn't changed. Marriage is still a unique partnership whereby a husband can say, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, what does this mean, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? Well, today, in our culture, When we want to say someone is a part of our family, we say they're our blood relative. And blood relatives are relatives we can't stop being relatives with, right? So my brother, with whom I share both parents, he will always be my brother. We're connected through our bodies. Well, in ancient Near Eastern culture, they'd communicate the same thing, but they used a different body part. Not blood, but bone and flesh. My wife is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and nothing can change that. She stuck with me till death do us part. This is an unchangeably permanent union. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, my blood relative in this completed partnership. 
That's the first purpose of marriage, to complete our existence by giving us this partner to share life with. Now, an important question coming out of all of this. Is it okay to be single? Can we experience a joy-filled, God-honoring life and never be married? The answer to that question is positively yes. You can live a fulfilled, complete life and be single your whole life. So the man who lived the most glorious, fulfilled, loving, and righteous life was never married. He never had sex. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. And next to Jesus, the second most prominent figure in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And based on what we know of Paul, he was single for most of his life, if not for the entirety of his life. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul actually encourages the Corinthian Christians who are single to stay single if they're able. He says it'll free them up for gospel ministry. So what about everything we've just said here from Genesis 2 about man being alone and that's not good and marriage completes us? Well, that's just it. Being alone is not good. Jesus and Paul, unmarried though they were, they were not alone. They had rich, meaningful, complete partnerships with friends, both men and women alike. So being alone is what's not good. Being single can actually be very good, as long as we're connected with others in authentic relationships. So for our first point, recognize marriage is a completed partnership. The application question isn't necessarily, are you married? If not, you better get married. No, the question for us is, are you alone? Are you disconnected from life-giving relationships? Are you afraid of opening up to others, putting yourself out there? Well, if so... It may be for a good reason. You've been hurt in the past. But if you're alone, know that God did not design life to be as such. God did not purpose life for us to be in isolation. We were made for community. And fullness of life can only be experienced in the goodness of relationships. So that's the first purpose of marriage, to give us this completed partnership, to give us the chance to connect with one another. And secondly, honor the mystery of marriage. Now you may be saying, what in the world is the mystery of marriage? That sounds odd. Well, hang with me, we're gonna get there, but I'm convinced that this is central to God's purposes in marriage for us to honor the mystery of marriage. So let's continue. In verse 24, Moses draws a conclusion from what's just taken place. So in verse 23, the man had received his wife in marriage. He claims her. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then he names her as well. She shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. 
And based on this, Moses concludes in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the first marriage sets a pattern for all marriages to come. When a man takes his bride in marriage, his priorities shift. Our highest relational duty prior to marriage is to our parents. Not anymore. The husband has a new bone of my bones, a new blood relative, and she is his highest priority. He has to leave mom and dad and hold fast to his wife. They are now one flesh. And what the scriptures are going to teach is that this one flesh union between husband and wife is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. This is especially laid out in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So in the letter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. And in chapter 5, he's specifically addressing Christian wives and husbands as to how they are to relate to one another. And you'll hear he's actually going to quote Genesis chapter 2, verses tw- verse 24, toward the end of this passage. So I'm going to read all 12 of these verses so that we can catch Paul's thought in full. Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, the apostle teaches that Christ and the church are one flesh, and Christ is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. Well, likewise, the husband and wife are one flesh. The husband is the head of the wife, and the wife is the body of the husband. The husband plays the part of Jesus, the sacrificial leader. The wife plays the part of the church, being the submissive, trusting partner. And as the husband and wife carry out these roles, you can see the gospel. 
In the husband, you can see the loving leadership of Jesus as the husband lays down his life for his wife. And in the wife, you can see the joyful submission of the church as the wife trusts and supports her husband. Paul says, for ages and ages, marriage was this mystery. Chapter 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The marital relationship embodies the relationship between Christ and the church. So what an honor. What an honor. Wives, you play the part of, Jesus, of the church. Wives play the part of the church. Hey, watching world, you want to know how the church feels about Jesus? You want to know how the church acts toward Jesus? Then look at how these wives submit to, respect, care for, and love their husbands. They trust their husbands just like Jesus trusts the church, just like the church trusts Jesus. These wives devote themselves to their husbands alone, no other man, just like the church devotes herself to Jesus and no other master. The church never leaves Jesus. He is our only Lord, always. And oh, what an honor. Husbands, we play the part of Jesus. Hey, watching world, you want, you want to know what Jesus feels about the church? You want to know how Jesus acts toward the church? Then look at how these husbands sacrifice for their wives. Look at how these husbands consider their wives more significant than themselves. Look at how tender he is when she's sorrowful. Look at how strong he is when she needs defending. Just as Jesus is sacrificial and tender and strong for the church, so husbands are for their wives. And Jesus never, ever forsakes his bride. He holds her fast even when we forsake him. He perseveres with us, and so too do husbands for their wives. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that the one flesh union between husband and wife refers to Christ and the church. That's the mystery of marriage. That's the mystery that's now been revealed that the one flesh union between husband and wife is a picture of the one flesh union between Jesus and the church. Brothers and sisters, we can share the gospel with our neighbors with heartfelt passion and theological accuracy. And we can share the gospel with our children every day. But if they don't see the gospel in our marriages, it is all in vain. If they don't see the love of Jesus in husbands, all our talking is like clanging cymbals. If they don't see trusting, loving wives, 
All our preaching is in vain. Honor the mystery of marriage. Now, we've got to be honest about something at this point. This can be really, really hard. Honoring the mystery of marriage, embracing our roles as Jesus for husbands and as the church for wives, this can be terribly difficult. For all of us, marriage is not always easy at times. and For some of us, it may have devolved into a living hell. So embracing your role as Jesus or the church could be painfully difficult. So if that's where you are, I plead with you still, don't give up. Jesus never leaves the church, husbands. The church never leaves Jesus, wives. Hang on and get help. With God, all things are possible. Do you believe it? And I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine the healing I've seen happen in marriages. It's like I couldn't believe. It didn't seem possible. But through loving community and through the power of the gospel, I've seen healing happen in marriages like I couldn't imagine. And our hope is that this church, our neighborhood groups and the other friendships you have here, that this could be a place where you can be safe to share exactly how hard it is for you guys. However hard it is for you guys. You can reach out. And so I plead with you, hang on and reach out for help. We want this to be a place where you can be supported and loved and walked with. Honor the mystery of marriage. Third and finally, receive marriage as the environment for unashamed intimacy. That is a part of the foundational purpose that God has for marriage, unashamed intimacy. Having received the helper fit for him, having been brought together in this one flesh union, Moses makes a final comment about the new couple. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before sin and relational strife entered the world, the man and the woman were without shame. In one another's presence, they feel so safe, they feel so free, they don't need clothes. No judgment, no criticism, no fear, no shame. They put themselves totally out there, and they're okay. A couple of times this past week, I came home from work, and I opened the door to go into the house, and the closest family member to the door to greet me was our two-year-old, Charlie. And I began to bend down to scoop him up and give him a hug, but my eyes didn't look directly at him. Meg was there, William was here, and I was greeting them as well. But I bend down and get my arm around Charlie, and I quickly realize there is nothing there but bare baby bottom. 
He does not have pants on or underwear. He had a shirt on, but no pants and underwear. And please don't judge us. Usually, our children do wear pants and underwear, but we're doing this potty training strategy. It's going to work. I'm not at home all day, so pray for Meg. But Charlie is naked and without shame. His whole self is out there, and he is thoughtless of any judgment. All he knows is acceptance and freedom. I'm free. I'm accepted for who I am. And his nakedness symbolizes that. Well, as I just said, marriage can be really hard, and things can unravel really fast. But this unashamed intimacy is what we were made for. And this is what Jesus came to restore for us. To the cross, we take all our shame. To the cross, we take all our sins and the sins of others committed against us. To the cross, we take our broken self. And from there, with Jesus, we run out of that grave made new, free, secure in the Father's love, accepted for who we are in Jesus, unashamed. And we don't go to the cross like this once, do we? We do it every single day. Because every day I wake up, and from the time my feet hit the floor until the end of the day, through one circumstance or another, I start hearing those voices, lies of the evil one. CT, you're not enough. CT, you're a failure. CT, you're unworthy of love. CT, you're not a good leader. CT, you're going to be rejected. Shame, shame, shame. So I go to the cross, and I stand in the river of grace that flows from there, and I hear the truth. CT, you are more broken than you will ever know, but you are more loved than you will ever know. And receiving that truth like that, it helps me show up in my marriage free, secure in who I am, strong and unashamed. And man, from that place of freedom, the intimacy of marriage is so sweet. The companionship is so precious. So whether you're married or not, will you come to the cross of Christ? He took on your shame so that you could be shameless, free, and spiritually secure in who you are. Will you come and receive his grace so that you can show up in life, you can show up in your marriage strong? compassionate, gentle, and loving. 
May it be so for all of us, and may it be so for our marriages. Let's pray.